Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors. Uh, last weekend, we had a great Easter weekend, and if you were with us, uh, I'm glad you're back with us this morning. And if you were away, I hope it, you had a great time wherever you were uh, traveling. And if you're here for the first time this morning, I really hope you feel welcome uh, to be with us this morning. We are starting uh, this Uh, morning, as you see behind me, uh, a series in the New Testament letter of Galatians. This series is going to last throughout the summer. Uh, Here at Christ Central, uh, we like to preach through portions and sections of Scripture. We, We like to allow the Bible to address us, meaning by preaching through portions of the Bible, we're not mainly asking the questions that we want to from the Bible, We're allowing the Bible to provide answers to the questions we might not even know we need to ask. And so for the next four months, we are preaching our way through Galatians. Let me give you some context for this New Testament letter. Many believe that Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul around 4950 A.D., uh, somewhere around 20 years after the death of Jesus. And Paul wrote this letter after his short-term missionary trip to Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And during his mission trip, the gospel of Jesus exploded in Galatia, and it bore much fruit. Listen to how the book of Acts describes Paul's mission in Galatia. In Pisidian Antioch, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And then in Derby, they preached the gospel to the city and, many, and made many disciples. The good news of Jesus Christ exploded and produced much fruit in Galatia. Paul then planted churches throughout the whole region and established leadership within those churches. But now Paul has received news that these churches in Galatia are veering off of course. They're no longer centered on the gospel that they received. That's why we've titled the the series Centered Faith. Paul's declaration in this letter is you are falling away from the gospel and I'm writing to stop you. And so he pins this letter, and this letter has been a bomb that has changed the world. Don't believe me? Let me give you one illustration. In the late 1730s, early 18th century, there was a group of believers uh, who actually did change the world, led by John and Charles Wesley, the the founders of modern Methodism, and the great open-air preacher George Whitfield. If you're familiar with this, it was called the Great Awakening. Thousands of people converted to faith in Jesus. But in the beginning and before this great awakening happened, there was a small group of people searching for God, trying to connect with God. And one night, it began to break through. God began to break through. A man named William Holland got a copy of Martin Luther, the great uh, father of the Reformation, and his commentary on this book, Galatians. Holland brought it to Wesley, and they began to read it to each other. And this is what happened to Holland. This is what he wrote. Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud. And there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. 
my companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. It was a huge turning point in Holland's life. And so Holland, after this, went reading the preface of Luther's uh, commentary on Galatians to anyone he could find. And Wesley also said this quote, My heart was strangely warmed, and I felt that I did trust Christ. And out of this small group of people, profoundly impacted by Galatians, came the Great Awakening. God used this book to drop gospel dynamite on a small group of people who would be used to revive the church. Do you find yourself at times saying, I believe I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, but I see no power in my life. My love of people is lacking. My joy is minimal. Peace is, pervasive, is, is elusive and doesn't stay with me. I'm, I'm sure I trust Jesus, but I don't seem to have these things in my life. I don't know if being a Christian has really changed me. I'm not sure that my view of family and my view of my neighbors and my view of money and the world is very different than my friends and family who say they're not Christians. I'm a Christian, but it feels like something is missing. I pray that this letter will be dynamite in my life, in your life, and in our church that it will awaken us. It has at least changed the Western world. I wonder how God might use it to change you and to change me. So I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're able, as is our custom, to read the first 10 verses of chapter 1 of Galatians as we start this new series. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would awaken us, stir within us by your spirit and to our spirit, that we might see Jesus. We might see the one who was put to death yet raised to life for us to redeem and to rescue us. Lord Jesus, draw us back to be centered upon the truth of the gospel and upon the freedom that the gospel provides unto us. Would you meet us where we are, we pray. Remove me, the preacher, so that you, Jesus, are experienced. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, living in the Triangle area for the past nine years, I've never attended a Carolina hur hurricane soccer game. 
I know I need to remedy that. I, I want to go and, and see a, a, a hurricane game. But growing up in Columbus, Georgia, I did attend many Columbus Cottonmouth hockey games. Uh, the Cottonmouths are a minor league team. I know the Hurricanes are an NHL, play, NHL team, so it's a very different caliber, very different game. But we went to many Cottonmouth games in high school. We loved going to the game. The best part of the game, of the hockey game, was when you would see two players start to get heated with one another. Then all of a sudden you knew the gloves were going to come off. And they were going to fight. And this was the time when, at least the Cottonmouths, everybody finally paid attention. Everybody looked back, and it was going to be a fight. The gloves were coming off. Well, Paul, the author of this letter, he takes his gloves off extremely fast. He's ready to fight. Quintilian, who lived in 35 AD to 95 AD, he was the master of classical-style rhetoric of his time. And if people wanted to know how to speak or how to write in a refined manner, they would read Quintilian. And he had strong opinions. Listen to his writing. Quote, I do not understand why they should open in such a wild and exclamatory manner. When a man is asked to express his opinion on any subject, he does not, if he's sane, begin to shriek, but endeavors as far as possible to win the assent of the man who is considering the question by a courteous and natural opening. Courteous and natural opening. This is hardly how Paul begins his letter. Paul drops his gloves from the very beginning and he's ready to fight. This is not a warm and an affectionate opening like many of Paul's letters. This is contentious, warring, and fighting. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Other of Paul's letters begin, to the saints, to my beloved. Here he is contradictory from verse 1, not from man nor through man. And then he grounds himself in his authority to be contradictory. Paul lays out his credentials. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. An apostle. An apostle was and is unique. Most ministers and preachers of the gospel in the early church were sent out by the human laying on of hands. But an apostle was unique because they were someone who spent time with Jesus. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They authenticated signs and wonders, and they were commissioned and sent out by God. See, the term apostle is not a word applied to every Christian. Scripture calls all believers saints, but doesn't call every Christian an apostle. Apostles, in this sense, is not something that still remains today. We don't have apostles like the twelve and like Paul. The apostleship that Paul is saying he has is neither human nor ecclesiastical. It doesn't come from human laying of hands or some church body, but rather it's divine. It's a divine commissioning. In other words, what Paul is saying my words are God's words. This is why Peter, the other, one of the other apostles, says that Paul's writings are as equal as his. Right? Paul's words are God's words, like Peter's words are God's words, because Paul was divinely commissioned, an apostle, through Jesus Christ, by the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. 
What greater credentials for exclaiming, Church, listen to me. Listen to me. What I say are the very words of God. If you want to submit to God, then you will submit to what I say. And then he states who it is he wants to fight. He writes, to the churches in Galatia. Catch that. Those causing trouble in Galatia are not those on the outside, are not the cultural shapers of Galatia. Rather, it is in fact Christians inside the church who were threatening the gospel and posing the greatest danger. I love what John Stott wrote. He wrote, Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try and change the gospel. Another way to put it, the greatest danger for Christians in the church is not the anti-gospel outside of the church, it is the counterfeit gospel inside the church. Let that sit for a second. That the people of God inside the church can be the church's greatest danger. So Paul says twice, if anyone preaches another gospel than the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The Greek there is let him be anathema. Let me literally translate that for you. Let him go to hell. Let him go to hell. Let him be condemned. Those are strong words. Those are fighting words. Paul's angry and he's ready to fight. Why? I mean, is Paul like that person that we all know? Right? That whether it was like a class or somewhere that you know, knew, knew the person who just liked to point out error when they saw it, or that person that likes to tell you why you're wrong and why they're right. Does Paul just like to pick fights to pick fights? No. Paul is ready to fight because the very gospel is at stake. And Paul knows that if you lose the gospel, you lose Jesus. And there are two things that I want to point out that Paul is willing to fight over. The first that Paul is willing to fight over the truth of the gospel. The truth. Truth matters. Believing right things matter. What you believe will lead to how you live your life. Or in theological language, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis. What you believe will lead to how you live your life. Therefore, orthodoxy matters. Now, I am normally a very proud uh, graduate of Auburn University, but this week I'm not that proud of my alma mater. Some of you may have seen Auburn University in the news this week. Auburn did not bring the speaker in, but they allowed another organization to bring a, speak, a speaker on the campus to deliver a speech. And the speaker was Richard Spencer, who is an alternative right white supremacist. And he made unbelievably hurtful state, statements about people of color and about white supremacy here's what you need to understand the reason Richard Spencer speaks about white supremacy and makes downright in my opinion wrong and idiotic and hurtful statements is because he has certain beliefs his belief of a racial superiority leads him to say and act in certain ways think about it how did World War II happen Thousands killed fighting in this war. What started it? 
the German Reich held a similar belief as Spencer, the supremacy of a race, which led to concentration camps and an effort to extinguish inferior races to create a pure society. The same thing led to segregation and apartheid in South Africa. Belief matters. False ideas matter because what you believe leads to how you live your life. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxis. So Paul, an apostle, divinely commissioned, has been given the message of the true gospel. And he's fighting to protect the truth. And in verses 3 to 5, Paul declares what this gospel is. Verses 3 to 5 is the precursor of the whole letter. Paul is stating in these verses what he will go on to proclaim in the next six chapters. And he starts, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. The two great benefits of the gospel. Grace to receive that which we do not deserve. And peace to be reconciled unto God and to one another. And how do we receive God's grace and peace? Paul lays out Christianity's greatest truth. Because, verse 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In that statement, Paul is stating who we are and who God is. We are a people who need to be rescued. We are a people who needed Jesus to die for us, to die for our sins, to die in our behalf. And Jesus willingly gave himself for us. It was in accord with the Father's will. They were in agreement. This is what had to happen. Jesus had to die for our sins. The cross is not this, primarily not this great act of heroism, cross is not a memento that we just wear around our necks and put up on our walls. The cross is primarily the means which Christ had to endure to rescue us from our sin. This is a radical truth, and it is the truth of Christianity. And I fear many of us have heard about the cross for so long that it's lost its power. That We needed to be rescued, and the way we are rescued is through the cross. Do you know that no other world religion is based on rescue by their God? Muhammad and Buddha, they came to teach, and their followers follow the teachings of Muhammad and Buddha. Jesus came to rescue. So the truth of the gospel is because of our sin, we needed rescuing. We were lost. Jesus rescues us through the cross. Jesus was a phenomenal teacher. He wasn't primarily a great teacher. And yes, we follow his teachings, but that's not why he primarily came. He came to rescue, and we grab hold of his grace and peace offered to us because of what he endured. If someone was drowning in the ocean, you wouldn't throw them a manual on how to swim, would you? learn to swim, follow its teachings. You'd throw them a lifeline and say, grab it. You need to be rescued. And we weren't just drowning people. Paul tells us in another letter that he writes, Ephesians, that we actually were dead in our sin. Dead. We were lying on the ocean floor. 
with no ability to swim, no ability to follow any of Jesus' teaching, we could not and we cannot help ourselves. So Jesus gave himself up for our sin. He accomplishes what we could not. Jesus doesn't just show us a life to live and then we live it. He lives the life we could not. And he did it perfectly. For the purpose, verse 4, to rescue us from the present evil age. We, through Jesus' rescue, by his grace and by his peace, then live a life unto him. A life that's not in accord with this present evil age, but a life in accord with the truth that he's declared over us by faith in him. That we are redeemed, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are rescued. And from that gospel truth, we then live unto him. Please catch that. Because verse 7 says that there are some in Galatia who are wanting to distort the gospel, which could be translated, there are some who are wanting to reverse the gospel. See, the truth of Christianity is based on a particular order, brothers and sisters. Does God love you and therefore as a result you love Him and lead a good life? Or do you come to God and give yourself in love and promise to lead a good life and then He loves and cares for you? Which is it? Does he accept us and therefore we live a good life or do we live a good life and therefore he accepts us? There are no really other alternatives. I heard a story this past week about an American girl who was trapped in a collapsed building in Port-au-Prince, Haiti when Haiti experienced an earthquake. And she was trapped and she thought she was going to die. But she had a brother who lived in Haiti. Not in Port-au-Prince, but he, he was in Haiti. And before the earthquake stopped, her brother started to make his way as fast as he could toward his sister. He wasn't sure exactly where she was, but he knew she was in Port-au-Prince. And so in complete darkness, with no electricity, no landmarks, through the night, he made his way and found her at the collapsed building of her school. And he started lifting the rubble. And he began to shout her name. And he pulled her out and rescued her. Here's the truth of the gospel. We were helpless and hopeless in our sin. And we have an older brother who left heaven and he made a beeline to earth to seek and save those who are lost. And he did so through the cross. Jesus, the great elder brother, is in the rescuing business. This is the truth of the gospel. And when we believe it, we will live unto it. But Paul is willing to defend and fight for this truth. The other thing that Paul was willing to fight over was the freedom of the gospel. The freedom. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, I'm astonished, I'm shocked, Paul says, that you are quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Paul is ready to fight because if they or we leave the gospel of grace and we turn to a different gospel, in deserting the gospel, we desert God himself. We desert God. Some in Galatia are deserting the truth of God's grace and peace. And the reason is because there are teachers and preachers who are distorting. They're perverting, they're reversing, they're turning the gospel upside down. Now please hear this. The teachers in Galatia perverting the gospel were not teaching something completely foreign. 
They weren't teaching something kind of crazy in left field. They were actually preaching and teaching that Jesus came to rescue. They would preach, you need to believe and you need to trust Jesus. But then they added to the gospel. They would say, yes, salvation in Christ, but you also need to adhere to Jewish law and to Jewish custom. They were adding to the gospel. They were preaching Christ plus. And it is easy for the teachers of the church to slip into teaching Christ plus. And it's easy for believers of the church to believe in Christ plus. I remember high school and in college going to different churches or conferences and retreats and hearing the call from preachers. Maybe you've experienced this. And the call from the preacher would say, if you're truly sorry, if you're truly sorry, and if you'll say this right prayer, and if you pray with great earnestness, then Jesus will save you. I'm not sure if they were aware or not, but what was being taught is that if you could generate a high degree of spiritual sorrow, if you could generate a high degree of spiritual hunger, and you prayed with just enough earnestness, you would be saved. That is being saved by a certain level of faith. And I want to tell you that our level of faith does not save us. The object of our faith saves us. Christ and Christ alone saves us. I've heard many churches, many many churches in Durham, say Jesus matters. But what really matters is being a loving and good person. A person who's going to fight for society, a person who wants to seek justice. Belief in Jesus matters, but what really matters is that you're good and you're loving. This this kind of preaching and teaching will also say all roads ultimately lead to God. Jesus is good. All roads ultimately lead to God as long as you're good and as long as you're loving. If good works are enough to get a person to God, only the good person gets to God. And in that gospel of good works, it actually becomes an exclusive gospel rather than an inclusive gospel. Because what about all the bad people? See, in the name of tolerance, this gospel produces intolerance of grace. And grace declares that no one is too good or too bad to receive God's grace. Thank the Lord that Christianity's truth is about Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that Jesus rescues those who appear good and those who appear bad, that on the day Jesus was crucified, he looked at the thief hanging next to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. I am so glad that the gospel is Christ plus nothing. Because if I had to add to anything of Jesus and his work, I would fall short. I think if you're honest, if you had to add anything to Jesus and his work, you would say you fall short too. Thanks be to God that it's Jesus plus nothing. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, the one who I mentioned his commentary on Galatians earlier, wrote this in his preface. This is, again, what burst into the Great Awakening. He wrote, quote, nothing to do, no nothing at all, Doing, hearing, knowing nothing, believing this only, Christ, our righteousness, holiness, and salvation. 
Christ-central church, this is a centered faith. And centered faith brings freedom, not bondage. Jesus plus theology brings a lot of guilt and a lot of condemnation. It produces a community of people that are always bound, feeling like they're never believing enough and they're never doing enough. They're always falling short. Therefore, there's a ton of guilt and a ton of condemnation. Christ alone gives freedom. And out of our freedom, we can grow. Our level of trust in Christ can increase, and we can grow our level of loving one another, and loving God can increase. The longer we're a church here, and we're moving out of a plant into more of an adolescence phase, an established church, the more I'm a pastor here and get to know our community, I think I've said this before, but freedom is becoming one of my main prayers. Freedom for myself, (laughs) freedom for many of you. The freedom that comes in knowing Jesus. I heard a pastor, Ray Ortland, question, he said, what what might our evangelicalism, our movement out into proclaiming Christ into our culture and into our cities, what might evangelicalism look like without this evangel, without this good news of grace, peace, and freedom? He said, we would have to replace the centrality of the gospel with something else naturally. So he asked the question, what might take place of the gospel in our sermons or in our small groups, in our classes, and, and most and above all, in our own hearts? Here's a few that he says could take center place. A passionate devotion to a political cause. Modern managerial church techniques. A deep, deep concern for the institution of family to protect my family. An easy believism, right? Anybody, as long as you believe, welcome. Political power, or just to be a loving and good community. Those aren't all bad things, but many things can become central. Therefore, we must have a centered faith, a faith that holds tightly to the truth of who we are and who God is. And out of this belief in this truth, we will, like Paul, well up with doxology, worship. That's why in verse 5, after like stating the truth of the gospel, Paul says in verse 5, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He couldn't contain it. He just worshiped. And as Christ breaks the many chains that we shackle ourselves with, and we live into this freedom of the gospel, we can proclaim like Paul in verse 10, verse 9 and 10, or verse 10, just verse 10, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? says, I'm not trying to please man. I love that. I've always loved that. Because here's what Paul is saying. I am free. I am free, and I'm not bound to the approval of anyone. And here's why. Because my God is already pleased with me. My God takes great delight in me. My Father in heaven looks at me, and because of my faith in Jesus, sees his Son. Therefore, I'm free. I will, by God's grace, and this church will, by God's grace, fight for the truth of the gospel. And we will fight for the freedom of the gospel. Will you hold tightly to the truth? And I pray you'll live into its freedom. For Christ and Christ alone is the dynamite that can cause our hearts to erupt with great worship and send us out in great service unto and for the Lord. Let's pray.
God, I ask that you would you would cause our hearts to explode, our thinking to be centered back upon your truth, our lives to be brought back. Some of us, Lord, for the first time, some of us have said we're Christians for so long and that, that we've been in churches, but we don't get this. We don't live by this. We've always added to you that we believe somehow you'll love us if we work for it. Set us free. Set us free, Lord Jesus, that we might live unto you, that we might love with the love we received from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.